This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Touching memoir, Sarah K. Lenz recalls a journey with her father along the rural backroads of central Nebraska, visiting the significant landmarks of his life in what he called his nostalgia tour. He reflects on his life as a failed farmer, and she remembers flashes of alcohol-fueled abuse. But an unexpected detour turns out to be the catalyst for a surprising moment of redemption. Sarah K. Lenz's nonfiction has appeared in numerous literary journals. She's the founder of the Writer's Studio, Corpus Christi, a community-based organization devoted to creative writing education. She teaches writing at Del Mar College in Corpus Christi, Texas, where she lives with her husband, son, and three cantankerous cats. Driving the Section Line Written by Sarah K. Lenz Read by Julie Niblett When I die, I want you to dump my ashes on Henry's Hill, Dad said. We sat at his kitchen table in his trailer house on lot number one, Delmar Mobile Home Court in Donovan, Nebraska, where he now lived alone. Okay, I said. Why are you telling me this? Someone needs to know. He had a USA Gold cigarette, the brand he switched to when Marlboro's got too expensive, pinched between his leathery fingers. His other hand clasped a can of old Milwaukee Red Label. On the table, a scrape the size of a dinner plate marked the spot where, decade after decade, he had rested his beer. Like a cataract or a contusion, the Formica's wood print had been scraped down by the bottom of the can. Now I mean it. You're to cremate me and dump my ashes on Henry's Hill. He had reached the familiar state of drunkenness in which he repeats himself, forgetting moments ago what he just said. He would reiterate this thread of conversation over and over until he ran out of beer, or stumbled off to bed to pass out. I took a sip of my beer. It was late May, and I was back from grad school in Georgia for a visit. I only saw Dad once or twice a year now, and as much as it was tedious to sit there in the same conversation loop, something in me felt duty-bound. My husband, Kent, had stayed behind in Georgia. I'd called him earlier that afternoon because I needed to tell someone about how depressing it was to see how my dad's life had diminished. Kent reminded me, You're the best thing he's done. He's proud of you and loves you. You can handle this visit. Though I appreciated his words, filial obligation weighed heavily. I thought about my younger sister, who hadn't spoken to her father in over a decade, not since he showed up to her wedding drunk. Part of me envied her for the clean break she'd made. The kitchen looks nice, I offered, trying to get him out of the conversational rut. Since my last visit, he'd remodeled, put in new oak cabinets and shiny laminate floors. 
It was a bitch putting that sink in, Dad said, waving his beer can toward the new stainless steel fixture. I broke two sets of brackets, had to make three trips to Menards. Looks pretty good, though. Sandy picked it all out before she got sick. He paused, took another long swig of beer. Dump my ashes on Henry's Hill. You got that? Yes, you already told me. I wished Sandy was here. She'd been Dad's girlfriend. The last time I saw her, we sat at this same table drinking Diet Dr. Pepper, her favorite. She told me, Your father doesn't have a malicious bone in his body. Sure, he drinks, but he wouldn't hurt a flea. She lived with him until she got sick last winter. A kidney infection had turned into sepsis, and she'd spent three weeks in the ICU. When I was visiting for Christmas last year, Dad had taken me to see her in the hospital. Because of the excruciating pain she was in, the doctors put her in a medically induced coma. I thought back to how heartbroken I had been for my dad that day. Sandy, it's me, Roland. Sarah's here too, he said as he leaned over her hospital bed. He gently brushed her must hair from her forehead and kissed her. Her eyes fluttered open for a moment, but I'm sure they couldn't register what they saw. His eyes filled with tears. When he saw me watching him, I looked away, focusing on the coloring book pages hanging listlessly around the room, which Sandy's grandkids had brought. When we left the hospital, it was brutally cold. The wind blew full tilt from the north, rattling the flagpole's rope and pulley. In the car, Dad tamped a cigarette from his pack and lit it. My breath streamed out in cloudy wisps, mingling with his cigarette smoke. He finally spoke. It sure is hard to see her like that, isn't it? I nodded. Afraid that he was going to cry again, I stared at the empty parking space next to us, where someone had dropped a banana peel. It was splayed flat across the frozen asphalt, its blackened edges curled in on itself in frozen helplessness. Hey, get me another beer, will ya? I got up from the table. Though there was a whole case of old Milwaukee in his fridge, there was little food. A crumpled McDonald's bag with half a burger inside sat on one shelf, a dozen eggs and a package of hot dogs on another. Do you miss Sandy's cooking? I asked as I handed him a beer. Every day. He belched, then cracked the new beer open and slid the tab sideways, a gesture I've seen him repeat hundreds, if not thousands of times. The next day, Dad and I went on what he called his nostalgia tour. We headed north for 60 miles, driving his 20-year-old Geo Prism, and ended up in Geranium Township at the top of Henry's Hill. It was supposed to be the highest point in Valley County. We stood at its summit just before the elevation dropped off into a ravine. A rotten fence post covered with lichen jutted from the earth, trailing a curl of rusted barbed wire. A few orangey cedar trees and smaller clumps of spiked yucca dotted the pasture. From that vantage, we saw what used to be our home place, 160 acres of farmland that, until my father lost it, had been in the family for five generations, since 1903. The two-story farmhouse, red barn and grain bins, occupied a quarter-mile section. 
We took in the expansive cornfields and feedlots full of cattle, all the land that used to be his. It was a geographical center. Point your finger at the middle of Nebraska on a map. You'll land on it. It was my father's center, too. He was pulled there now, even decades later, as if by gravity or some other invisible force. I imagined shaking his ashes from an urn and how they would scatter on the wind and land on the soil he used to plow. Here's the spot. Is it legal? I asked Dad, wondering about who owned the land, about trespassing laws and burial laws. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. He flicked his cigarette down the embankment, giving me something else to worry about. The combination of dry wind and parched grass was perfect for brush fires. The wind made a high-pitched groaning as it swept over the cottonwoods and made me feel spooked. It had a sinister quality, unlike any place I had ever lived. Not like the soupy, humid air of the deep south, nor the arid air of Boise, Idaho's foothills. Those places didn't have real wind, unlike here, where the weather was mercurial. When'd you start farming? I asked. Let's see, that would have been spring of 77. He squinted into the distance between the pasture and cornfields. He didn't see well anymore and needed cataract surgery. Get me those binoculars in the glove box, will ya? He had parked the white geo a few feet away in the empty hayfield. I got the binoculars for him. I should have known I'd have bad luck, he continued, binoculars held tight against his eyes as he focused in on the home place. That first year, corn got hailed out, lost everything. He paused and let the binoculars down. That kind of thing makes it hard not to be superstitious. Makes you wonder about God. Those words hadn't sunk in before he changed the subject. This used to be a Pawnee Indian lookout. This was just speculation on his part, another kind of faith, the only kind he can muster anymore. After Henry's Hill, Dad drove the section lines, roads that follow both the compass coordinates and the mile-by-mile -mile Jeffersonian grid that made a patchwork of this flyover country. We drove past a pasture where I used to tag along during calving season. Once I'd watched from the pickup as Dad helped a black Angus birth a white-faced calf. We drove past a freshly planted cornfield, a giant swath of brown corduroy. Its loam perfumed the air. We drove past another field Dad used to farm, where in the summer we checked the irrigation pivots. The sky spread so deep blue it hurt my eyes. It hit me how I used to feel a sense of peace on those summer nights. As dusk settled in, so did the feeling that all was right in the world. Driving through fields of corn as tall as the pickup truck, we had seen green leaves gleaming with moisture, the arching spray from the pivot hitting the last rays of sunlight, haloing the world in fleeting rainbows. I understood the ache of Dad's loss. We passed by grain bins with the Chief Industries logo, an Indian in profile wearing a white and red feathered headdress, depicted in blockish rectangles. Dad retired from chief a few years ago, but he still wore the same factory work clothes, navy blue Dickies work pants held on his bony frame by thick red suspenders. He had worked in fabrication and welding. I thought about the downward trajectory of his life, how he went from producing the grain that went into the bins to building the bins in a factory. The geo crawled slowly along the gravel roads, soft at the edges from a recent rain. The windows were down. 
Waylon Jennings played on the tape deck. Dad barely said a word as we drove. I wondered what he was thinking about. All his talk about his funeral plans made me feel a sad sort of pity. What does it feel like to look back at your life and have little to show for it but a string of failures? Dad had returned to the home place in the late 70s to run the cattle and corn operation with his father and brother during the Earl Butts era of American agriculture, the beginning of rapid consolidations and the get big or get out mentality. They wanted to get big, and it seemed like the perfect time. Grain prices soared because of a Russian grain shortage. Dad had just suffered his first divorce and been discharged from the Air Force. With few other prospects, farming was his fallback, but he quickly fell in love with it. He also fell in love with my mother that summer. They eloped in September. Four years later, I was born. We passed another farmstead, a two-story farmhouse surrounded by cattle feedlots. There's Treptos. You remember them? Sure. Dad said so little that I wasn't sure if I was supposed to elaborate on my response or match his few words. I remembered Calvin Treptow had tried to help Dad save the farm in the 1980s when things started to fall apart. At the height of prosperity, Dad, along with my grandpa and uncle, farmed 2,400 acres, fed 800 head of cattle, and hayed 1,000 acres. They'd managed to expand by taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans for more land, more machinery, and more glistening black cattle. The bankers handed out loans like candy because the land was always there as collateral. Then the bubble burst. The bank that held the loans went under. Immediate repayment was due. Grandpa Harvey sold all his machinery and cattle and still fell short. The 160-acre home place, to which Grandpa held the deed, went to the FDIC, which foreclosed on the land and the farmhouse. Dad asked Calvin Trepto for help. Somehow, Dad convinced Calvin to buy the home place and rent it back to him. A farmer's agreement, sealed with a handshake. It didn't work out. Under a mountain of debt himself, after eight years, Calvin put the home place up for sale. Hoping he had just enough collateral to swing it, my dad applied for a loan. During the three days' wait for loan approval, the farm sold to someone else. I wondered if he drank because he lost the farm, or if he lost the farm because he drank. It was an impossible, tumbling riddle. I had been in second grade when we moved to a house in the small town of Ord, county seat of Valley County. All of Dad's farm equipment, planters, cultivators, combines, were auctioned to pay the bank. Dad took a job as an itinerant construction worker, welding girders and pouring concrete to build bridges and freeway ramps. In ever-widening circles, he followed the work away from his geographic center. We drove on. Dad wanted to take me to the one-room school where my grandma had taught and where he and my uncles went to school into the eighth grade before transferring to Ord High School. At first, he couldn't find the schoolhouse. I worried about his mind. Surely, 40 years of alcoholism shoots memory to hell. Apparently, a farmer moved the schoolhouse building on the back of a haystack mover, so now it sat in someone's back pasture. For 45 minutes, we drove up and down the section lines before we turned off the road and nosed the car up to a three-strand barbed wire gate. Get the gate, will ya? 
Now I was less worried about trespassing and more worried about cattle. What if there was a bull? Reluctantly, I unbuckled the seatbelt that Dad teased me for wearing. Maybe he had a point. We hadn't met another car all day, nor exceeded 45 miles per hour. Still, I knew how loose gravel could fishtail a car without warning. The gate was jerry-rigged with bailing wire and pliers. I laid the fence down flat so that he could drive over the wire. I refastened the gate and got back in the car. Dad found a cowpath rut in the pasture and followed it along the hills. At ten miles per hour, the car pitched like a boat over swells. Behind a cluster of cedars, I saw it. A sagging schoolhouse, its clapboards weathered to a dull gray. Dad got out of the car, stubbed his cigarette in the grass, and rattled out a spittle-laden cough. He opened the front door and walked in like he owned the place. The building's graceful decay made it more beautiful than it ever could have been in its prime. Peeking through rot holes in the roof, sunlight dappled the warped floorboards and flashed across a broken wall. Plaster crumbled off wood lathes like frosting off a cake. Long skins of milk-green paint peeled from the remaining plaster. Dad wandered around the ruined schoolroom. Look, here's the old bell tower, he said. I looked up. The belfry was empty. Remember that old bell we had on the farm? Here's where it came from. Your grandma got it when they closed the school. But it sold at the foreclosure auction, remember? I did, and I understood why he called this his nostalgia tour. Each landmark or object was a way for him to tell me, without so many words, the stories I already knew. If I was his legacy, he needed to be reassured that I knew his stories and that they would live on after he's gone. When I was growing up, Mom had used the school bell for a dinner gong. My favorite chore was ringing it when supper was ready. No matter how far away Dad worked on the home place, the bell summoned him. Only a sound that crisp and loud could pierce the windy, almost treeless land. It traveled farther than my loudest screams, meant to provoke the tom turkeys into gobbling, louder than the howl of Spike, our border collie, and louder than the cries of wild coyotes. It filled the space with its resounding, mellifluous tolling. I felt it in my throat and lungs, almost tasted it as it caught and scattered in the wind. In this small family ritual, maybe we had wished the gong could put demons to flight and protect us from hail and tornadoes. After a few minutes, I felt anxious in the schoolhouse's silence, broken only by the wind swishing ominously through the cedars. A mud-caked four-wheeler parked in the back room reminded me that we were trespassing again. Did the owner carry a gun? Might he think we were there to steal his property? Dad wasn't worried. If needed, he could explain why we were there. Three miles later, Dad pulled up to a row of ancient Osage orange trees a mile south of the home place. His weathered face matched the gnarled tree's wrinkled bark. He pointed to a field of corn seedlings. There used to be a road here, he said. I walked this road to school and back, straight across the section line. I tried to imagine my father as a child, but soon abandoned the idea. Instead, I thought about how things fade and disappear. Grandma used to pick the lumpy green Osage oranges. She put them in the bottom of her china cabinets and closets to repel bugs, 
but it seemed to me that, like the school bell, they protected us from other things, too. Perhaps the Osages ordered off the evil spirits carried by those dry prairie winds. I wished they were in season so I could have taken some home with me. But even if they had been, I wouldn't have been able to get them through airport security. No one knows what they're used for anymore. We drove past yet another cornfield, this one planted in Cargill seeds. The test plot signs were already set into the ground at each row, the seed hybrid number printed below the yellow and black Cargill logo, a sideways seed that looked like a teardrop. Hey, that's my old brand, Dad said. I remembered that too, but it wasn't a pleasant memory. Because Dad planted Cargill brand seed, his seed distributor gave him Cargill swag, trucker hats and jackets, even a yardstick. It was the winter of 1987, and I was a kindergartner. My mother was pregnant with my little sister. Mom had turned my old bedroom on the first floor into the nursery, and my new bedroom was relocated upstairs to the room that had been my father's when he was a boy. The room frightened me. Most nights when I couldn't sleep, I'd sneak downstairs to the living room where Dad drank beer and watched mash reruns. He let me snuggle in his lap, breathing in his scent of tobacco and beer, earthy and malty, both sour and sweet until I fell asleep. After a while, any time I woke up alone in the room, I ran downstairs and refused to go back to bed unless Mom or Dad laid next to me until I fell asleep. One night, when I tried to sneak downstairs, Dad ambushed me. He sat on the landing, a can of beer in one hand and his Cargill yardstick in the other. The yardstick was several inches wide, a quarter inch thick and painted bright yellow and stamped with that teardrop-shaped logo. When he saw me, he cracked the yardstick, hard on the linoleum. I burst into tears. He jabbed the yardstick at my bare legs, then tipped his head back, swigging the dregs from his can, then threw it down the stairs. The hollow can clattered as it bounced down the steps and rolled toward my mother, who was sitting at the kitchen table, too terrified to stop him. I cried gasping, hysterical tears, losing my breath as I tried to escape the dark terror of the room, only to be goaded back into it by the pokes and slaps of the yardstick. That night I fell asleep with my face pressed against the crack of light at the bottom of the closed door. Remember that Cargill yardstick you used to have? Remember when you spanked me with it because I wouldn't sleep in my own bed? He glanced at me for a second, then clasped his hand hard on my knee, something he always used to do when I was little. You know, I didn't hit you. Really? I sure as hell made a lot of noise, though, he chuckled. Scared the living shit out of you. If you have mental problems, you can blame it on me. He paused to take a long drag of his cigarette. But I think you turned out fine. It worked, too. You always slept in your own bed after that. I wondered if he was telling me the truth. Maybe it didn't matter. He wouldn't have behaved that way if he hadn't been drunk, and the terror he instilled was traumatic enough on its own. Still, I never remembered fearing him after that, even when his fights with Mom got bad. My mother had toughed out her marriage with an alcoholic for lots of reasons. Genuine love, financial precarity, a religious conviction that divorce was sin, and her belief that we were better off with a bad dad than no dad at all. 
By the time I was a junior in high school, I knew my dad was a drunk. When I played Hermia in the drama club's production of A Midsummer's Night Dream, Dad showed up on opening night drunk. Stale beer fumes hovered around him, which, based on my mother's disgust, might as well have been flies swarming putrefied meat. He didn't act drunk. It was only when he hugged me after curtain call did I get a whiff. You were great up there, he said. I was just grateful he had seen me on stage. Between the constant drinking and the construction crew job that had him on the road, I felt nearly fatherless. I clung to the tiniest crumbs of praise from him because compliments were rare and unexpected. Growing up, I'd never known how to gauge his emotions. Would he demand silence and ignore me? Become garrulous and tell funny stories? Or would he erupt in rage? Not long after I'd moved away to college, Mom finally filed for divorce. This was after Dad had landed a steady job at Chief Industries. He had gotten a DUI after the company's annual Christmas party when driving home alone and drunk. He'd stopped at a four-way stop sign in the middle of the intersection. Because of the DUI, his license was revoked, and he could no longer commute to Chief. He moved out and rented a dive hotel room a few blocks from the factory and bought a second-hand bicycle to get to and from work. With Dad out of the house, Mom took the opportunity to finalize it. I saw a pickup truck approaching in the distance. Dad exchanged a one-fingered wave with the driver, a cultural norm around here. How's your mother? Dad asked. She's fine, I said. I looked out the window at a field spotted with round hay bales. I'm sure he wondered if she was happier without him. We should head back, Dad said. He coughed, rattling phlegm again as he lit another cigarette. I knew he was getting antsy for a beer, ready to spend the rest of the day downing his habitual twelve-pack. He pointed the car east, toward the nearest package store in Ord, about seven miles away. On our way, we came upon the Geranium Catholic Church, a quaint brick church with a white steeple centered on its peaked roof, a sight so familiar to me it could have been a painting over my bed. A gravel parking lot spread out in front. To its south, more cornfields. Behind the church, next to a small graveyard, stood a life-size crucifix. As a kindergartner, I rode with my mother every school day to meet the school bus. By driving the section line, we could intersect the bus route at the gravel lot of the church, cutting the circuitous route by ninety minutes. I remembered my fascination with the crucifix back then, with Jesus's graphically depicted agony. Dad pulled the car to a stop. I got out. The wind lashed the gray-knit skirt I was wearing, whipping it against my thighs. I headed for the statue, realizing I had never seen it from up close. Rendered in black granite, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene knelt at the foot of the cross. Gazing at it, I thought about what strength it must have taken these women to watch Jesus's slow death on that cross. An anguished cry pinched Mary Magdalene's lips. Her desperate eyes gazed heavenward. I thought, I will lose my father even more slowly, like topsoil blown away by the wind. Though I'm not Catholic, I tried to remember the Hail Mary prayer. Only the last part came to me. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. 
I liked the idea of Mary interceding for the dying, since I had been watching my father slowly kill himself for decades, poisoning his heart and lungs on a pack-a-day cigarette habit and pickling his liver with rock-gut beer. Pray for us sinners, now. Dad walked up behind me. He cleared his throat and spat a ball of mucus into the tall brome grass. Did you know we have relatives buried here? He asked. I shook my head. He showed me my great-great-grandparents' tombstone, dating back to the 1890s. I wondered why we hadn't visited the graves before. But then I realized you can only grieve what you've known. Neither of us had been inside the geranium church before. It closed when I was in junior high 20 years ago. Nailed-up plywood replaced a broken stained glass window. Dad walked up the cement steps to the entrance and tried the door. It opened. As we crossed the vestibule into the sanctuary, a holy hush took hold. The formerly blood-red carpet was dull with dust. Hymnals and prayer books furred with cobwebs sat untouched in wooden pew racks. Light streamed in through the remaining stained glass in beams of red, green, blue, and yellow. The nave looked frozen in time. I tried a small door to the left of the pulpit. A yellowed choir robe hung on a hook next to a small tarnished mirror and an ancient-looking fire extinguisher. I found it oddly comforting that this safety feature was still at the ready after all these years. I caught sight of myself in the mirror and was surprised by the guilty look on my face, as if I were somehow to blame for the failures and losses that had been following my father. When I turned to leave the room, I saw Dad opening the door to the confessional, opposite the sacristy. I've only seen confessionals like this in the movies, he said. If you were Catholic, I asked, what would you confess? I wouldn't know where to begin, he said, a nervous chuckle gurgling in his tobacco-horsened throat. Okay, then, if you were Catholic, who would you light a candle for? Sandy, he mumbled, and turned away from me to start up the choir loft stairs. When Sandy was released from the hospital in March... She was too weak to take more than a few steps at a time with her walker, even after physical therapy. Dad had wanted to take care of her, but Sandy thought she was a burden. She applied for public housing in the town where her son and grandchildren lived, two hours away from Donovan, and moved out. Sandy was Dad's most recent in a long string of losses. I followed him up the stairs. From the choir loft, we looked down at the life-sized crucifix. How's Sandy doing? I asked. Her mind's fuzzy, he said. I call her every morning. We have the same conversation because she can't remember anything from the day before. That's too bad, I said, blinking hard against the dust motes and my own tears. Well, it's just the same old, same old. Same shit, different day. On the way out of the church, we stopped in the vestibule. Dad looked up at a yellow nylon rope dangling from the belfry. I'll be damned, he said. What? There's still a bell up there. He tugged the rope. I heard a creaking, like two porcelain dinner plates being rubbed together, followed by the first clap, then another. Sounds just like my old school bell. He grinned like a schoolboy. Encouraged, he rang it again, putting his shoulder into it this time. He tugged the rope harder and harder, letting it slide through his hands on the rebound. He kept pumping, but now held on tight, letting the rope pull him off the ground. 
He kept ringing. The sound grew louder, the rings blending into a single unbroken pulse. My ears buzzed. I imagined the sound waves spreading over the section lines, across the fields in concentric circles, past the sculpture of Jesus, past the schoolhouse, past the home place, past Henry's Hill, spreading out wider and wider into the universe. My father kept ringing. He was ringing away demons and thunderstorms, ringing away illnesses, ringing away random acts of God, chasing off the last heavy silences that hung between us. His grin revealed rotting teeth, and beads of sweat dotted his forehead. At last, my father let go of the rope. It took a long time for the clapper to stop. Finally, as the last reverberations faded, and Dad started to catch his breath, he began to hack and cough. I asked him if he was okay. He nodded and took a blue hanky from his back pocket, mopping his face. Then he looked at me, eyes beaming with love as dust motes swirled in an angled stream across the transom, snared by rays of sunlight. This story is copyright 2015 by Sarah K. Lenz. This recording is copyright 2020 by River Cliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of River Cliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.